So if you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Acts, chapter 9, please. Acts chapter 9. And uh, we're going to be starting, technically tonight we're doing verses 22 through 31. 9, 22 through 31. But I'm going to jump around a little bit more than that. And hopefully it won't be a confusion to you. You'll, you'll pick it up. We're going to be talking specifically about Saul's early ministry in Damascus and Jerusalem. This is uh, Saul of Tarsus, who when our brother was, Ernie was sharing last week, he uh, was interrupted on the Damascus Road there and came to faith in Jesus. And uh, in, in, uh, in chapter 9, we have really what is a key transition in the book of Acts. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in the book of Acts all the time. A lot of, a lot of interesting detail about a whole bunch of different people. But you can, for the sake of argument, you can divide the book of Acts up into two sections. You have the church and the apostle Peter in the first half of the book, and then you have the narrative of the ministry of the apostle Paul, starting from about chapter 13, verse on. Actually, he gets the name change in 13, verse 9. So for all of our stuff tonight that we're doing, his name is still Saul of Tarsus. And uh, it's a good idea, for a very good idea, actually, for us to keep in mind the words of the Lord concerning this guy. We need to have a good understanding of who he is and what he is here for, what he's doing. And I say that because if you read the Bible every day, and I hope you do, if you don't read the Bible every day, you're probably having issues in your life because of not doing that. If you read the Bible every day, if you're like me, you can begin to get numb to the things that you read. You begin to read characters and people, even the life of Jesus. And you just hear, you know, like from the Peanuts characters, yada, 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 yada. And you're not really, it's not making the impact upon you that you really need to receive. And um, I was talking to Diego uh, Sunday night, actually, about the fact that um, it's, actually, I was talking to Fernando, I lied, um, about how difficult it is to be appraised of the importance of the things you do with your life. You know, you know, you know God's put in front of you. You've got a day tomorrow, right? I don't know what you're doing. You're going to school. You're going to work. You're going to hang out around the house. You know, you're waiting for the UPS guy. Who knows? You know, the, the guy from Spectrum TV is going to come and put a thing on your house or whatever, you know. You've got a day tomorrow. You have some idea of what it looks like. Now, by the time you go to bed, that may change entirely may be all different, but the bottom line is this. You're going to get up and you're going to go about the work that God set in front of you, things he wants you to do. But my question to you, and I, it's rhetorical, I think I already know the answers. Do you really appreciate, sincerely, to the bottom of your heart, appreciate the importance of what you're going to do tomorrow? What, what it is that's going on? This is a chunk of your life. This is a segment of why God has placed you here. And you need to have an appreciation of what that means and in the most practical sense. You need your, you know, your, your blood needs to be filled with it. So as you go about the things you do, you have that in the forefront of your mind. Otherwise, you become like me. You're just kind of droning through life, you know, doing this and that and missing opportunities to serve God or not seeing entirely the significance of what God really wants you to do. And I need to have that. I desperately need that. I cannot be... A Christian zombie. I cannot just be wandering through the world. And so, not only for myself, but when I read this stuff, when I read the, this guy, Saul of Tarsus, I want to connect with that. I want to see who he really is, what he was really doing. And I have to tell you, as we're going through this tonight, I think this particular man, more maybe than any other person apart from Jesus, had that perspective. He understood where he was and what he was here for because he was so driven. He was so driven. And I just, I look at that and it is a marvel to me. And it's like, it's a target for me to, to shoot for in my life. You know, uh, as we get in a couple of different places, the words of Jesus concerning to who the apostle Paul is, as the Lord speaks to Ananias of Damascus in Acts 9.15, Jesus tells him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. 
The Apostle Paul is not nobody. It's interesting that this guy Ananias knew of him, knew about his trip, and knew about the purpose of his trip. Because he didn't have social media. Ananias was not on Facebook. Alright? It's not common knowledge. They didn't put up billboards in town. Paul's coming. Christians run. You know, they didn't do that. And I'm sure there was a substantial gossip, you know, community going on. But somehow or another, he knew who Saul of Tarsus was. He knew why he was coming. He knew his history. He had all that down. Pretty interesting. It's also interesting, actually, here, that to me, that Ananias was told by Jesus that Saul would bear the name of the Lord before the Gentiles. Now notice, this is, this is before Peter breaks that rule with Cornelius in chapter 10. And so, I don't know what Ananias thought of that, but he didn't say anything to Saul about it. it it's true that God is not a respecter of person. To keep, check this out, guys. That never means that he does not select particular individuals for particular purposes, nor that he does not bless those who serve him faithfully. He does both of those things in big ways. Some of the words of Jesus to Saul that are not included in the initial conversion account in chapter 9 from Paul's recollection in chapter 26 before Festus and Agrippa, he remembers the Lord telling him, but rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will reveal to you. Now, if you think of that, I've called you to be a witness of things you've seen, things I will reveal to you. Really, that same kind of instruction the Lord could offer to any one of us, in a sense, that's our calling. That's what God's called you to do, to be a witness of the things you've seen and the things that he will show us. I've often thought the Apostle Paul was somebody that the Lord was really fascinated with because he was going through his life at 120 miles an hour. Just, you know, gone! And the only problem, of course, is that he was going 120 miles an hour in the wrong direction. And then, of course, you know, the Lord stepped out of time and space, took a hold of his life, and, and got his attention, turned him. Tonight we're looking at some of the first accounts, the details of that change in direction for Saul, here in Acts chapter 9. It's interesting that this guy came to faith in Jesus outside of the nation Israel. Even though Saul was originally from Tarsus of Cilicia, Tarsus of Cilicia is the southwestern corner of Turkey on the Mediterranean coast. He likely spent the better part of his life and all of his academic training in and around Jerusalem. That's where the action is for religious Jews. And Saul is a Pharisee. This guy's a Pharisee. So to this very day, if you're anybody in Judaism, you're in Jerusalem. You know, if they say, well, this guy's a very prominent Jewish figure. Where does he live? Dallas. No, he's not. He's not. I'm sorry, it's just not the way it works. If you're a very prominent Jewish figure, you live in the old city of Jerusalem. And that's all there is to it. It's the bottom line. I'm sure Saul would have been pleased to have spent his whole life in Jerusalem. However, in his service to the religious leaders and the Pharisees, he saw the need to kind of choke out and smother out these heresies and the sedition in foreign cities like in the city of Damascus. And so the Lord took opportunity to use this to get Saul's attention. In just a few years' time, guys, his home church, the fellowship that actually sends him out into the mission field, to change the world, his home church is in Syria, the place where they were first called Christians. Not, not in Damascus, but it's interesting. You may have heard Pastor Xavier say from time to time how God interrupted and messed up his life. He had these plans, you know, he's going to teach Spanish and physical education. He's going to get his degree. He's going to do this and that. And then God messed up his life, you know. Let me tell you, God messed up Saul's life, something fierce. Now, he had all kinds of plans. I don't, he likely had zero expectation. You know, if somebody would have stopped him on the road, he's leaving Jerusalem and said, hey, you're going to come back, but you're going to be a Christian. He would have probably had, a, you know, just fallen over laughing over that. He, the, he had zero expectation he'd return from Damascus as a disciple of Jesus. No chance in the world. Totally impossible. Could never happen. What was that that the, uh, the captain of the Titanic said? Do you remember that quote? Not even God can sink this ship. Yeah. If, 
If I'd been on the ship and heard that, I, I would have gotten off really quick. Never a good idea to dare God with the impossible. That is where he lives. He does the impossible all day long and twice on Sunday. God always answers every challenge. Saul is the poster child for dramatic conversion experience. Everybody's conversion is dramatic to them and to maybe the people that know them well. Saul's conversion was unbelievable to anybody who ever heard of him. There aren't too many people in the history of the church that can compete with him on that particular score. Here in Damascus, a walled city, just days after believing in Jesus Christ, Saul continues to serve the Lord's purpose, and he suffers the identical consequence that will follow him through the Roman world. Some people will turn to Christ, others will persecute and try to kill him. And so in verse 22, Saul represents Jesus Christ. Verse 22 says, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So Saul, being baptized with the Holy Spirit before he was baptized in water, as in verse 20, immediately preaches Christ in the synagogues and it, of Damascus, that Jesus is the Son of God. Notice, when he says that, he's not preaching Jesus is the Messiah. He's preaching that Jesus is God. The Apostle Paul, baptized in the Holy Spirit before he gets dunked in water, goes to the synagogues on this first day and starts telling people, Jesus is God. And you think those people didn't freak out? You know, I mean, it had to be wild for them. Imagine the weight of his testimony. And you read the, what the people say. The people who heard him were amazed in verse 21. And when it tells us here in 22 that he increased all the more in strength, I don't think he's hitting the gym. He, he may have been physically drained after the experience he had on the road. Probably ate nothing until verse 19. All right? But we're expecting that a few days have passed. Ministry in the synagogues takes place on Saturday. But the focal point here is that Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Remember that Jesus said in Acts 1.8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will receive power. Hey, are you lacking power in your ministry? Would you like to see God's power displayed more liberally? in your life as a follower of Jesus. I'm, I'm down with that. I like that. Ask God to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Get rid of the junk out of your life that is an encumbrance, that is hindering. Get rid of the junk out of your life that is quenching the Holy Spirit. And ask God tomorrow morning before you get out of bed, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. And then trust that he's able to do it. The result is, guy created an amazing uproar in the Jewish community here in Damascus. In fact, it says in verse 22, he confounded the Jews, proving that Jesus is the Christ. The word confounded really referenced the Jewish people being somewhat confused by the facts of the issue. You know, when a person is indoctrinated, not instructed or taught, but when a person is indoctrinated, a.k.a. brainwashed, all right? in a position that they're presented with contrary truth that contradicts their position, they, they get confused because they're adamantly opposed to the facts that they're presented with. Gives rise here to the idea that these people had no real answer for his words, which made things for them much worse. This is not some visitor from a foreign city. This guy is a Pharisee from Jerusalem, with some authority from the high priest, and he's preaching Jesus in my synagogue. You know, what on earth, what are you going to say to him? What do you do with that? Christian community in Damascus, folks, dates back to this time, actually before, before this time. Ananias was a believer there before. Unfortunately, today, the Christian community in that place has suffered greatly under the persecution of Islam and ISIS 
and the political abuse of the Assad regime, Hafez al-Assad and his, his son. And still today, to this very day, right at this hour, guys, okay, in Damascus of Syria, there are believers there that we have heard their testimony that they are sharing the gospel with Muslims and they refuse to leave. They refuse to be refugees. They refuse to seek asylum. Sharing the gospel with Muslims, refusing to leave, answering the call to give their lives to Christ, just as Saul did. Just as he did. I think it would be a very difficult thing to face your own death and the death of your loved ones. But it is what we are called to do. Let's not be confused. We're not called to go to church two days a week and hang out, make nice with our friends, and when it's convenient, do something for God. That is not what you have been called to do. You have been called to give your life for Jesus Christ. It's the only kind of relationship that he offers. The one where he's God and you're you. And this is the truth. And if you had any other ideas about it before, let him go. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And you know, we can suffer pain and hardship and all kinds of contradiction for the name of Jesus. But one thing, no one can take our lives until the Lord is done with us. No one, no one, nowhere, under no circumstances can take your life until God is done with you. And I think Saul knew this. Verses 23 to 25, Saul evades capture and death. A lot going on in this section, and some of it is between the lines. In verse 23, now, after many days were passed, remember that I said that, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They watched the gates day and night to kill him. And then the disciples took him by night let him down through a wall, through the wall in a large basket. So, first of all, it's important that we recognize there's a substantial passage of time here. Probably about a little more than three years time. Which is not uncommon in the book of Acts. If you go through the book of Acts and you compare chapter and verse, you're going to find uh, a classic example is chapter 20. In the first five verses of chapter 20 is like a year and a half's time. And then from, from the end of that, those five verses through, the whole rest of the chat is only about a month or two. That's it. And you find that there's you know, chronological incongruities throughout the book of Acts like that. Well, I believe here in chapter, chapter 9, verse 23, is the place where Saul's early experience as a believer in Christ, where he actually travels to Arabia, and he describes it in the book of Galatians, chapter 1. Let me read to you Galatians 1.11. Paul writing to the people in Galatia. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to man, or preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor was taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, in my own nation being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him for 15 days, likely a reference to his trip in our, our chapter, chapter 9, verses 26 to 29. And he goes on in, in chapter Galatians 1.19. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, now concerning the things which I write to you indeed, before God I do not lie. Afterwards I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown to the face of the churches in Judea that were in Christ, but they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. 
and they glorified God in me. And then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me. Now the idea here, guys, is that this gospel Paul preached was not of human origin. He conferred with the Holy Spirit of God concerning the gospel, the message and the result, the revealing of God's mystery. He went into Damascus, he preached the gospel... At a particular point in time, he left the city of Damascus, went into Arabia, which basically, in this time frame, is anywhere pretty much east of Damascus, east and southeast of Damascus, is going to be the area of Arabia. He went there, and he spent time with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't sound like he was there for a long time, but he returned back to Damascus and spent the better part of three years in the city ministering. I think about this, and you know... I'm wondering, didn't he have family and friends back in Jerusalem who I don't think they expected him to be gone so long? But the other thing is, is he's a Pharisee. He's like burned all them bridges. He just preached Jesus at all the synagogues of Damascus. And what is he going to do when he goes back to Jerusalem? And they say, oh, what's up, Saul? <laughs> well, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> it, you know, it's going to be, and I, I, I don't know, you know how the Lord dealt with him, but obviously he felt a calling by God to be in the city of Damascus for that time and to serve. God revealed to him the mystery, Colossians 1.26, the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations, but now is revealed to his saints. That's you. You are the saint of God. And he has real, revealed this in his word. He's revealed it to you. We have to consider that Saul has a tremendous advantage in preaching to Jewish people because reasonably, most likely, he's got the entire Old Testament text committed to memory by his early 40s. He knows the whole Old Testament by heart in his head. And then, of course, he's a biblical, biblical scholar. He's been trained in theology in first century Judaism, which, of course, his new, new theology doesn't line up with, but any kind of a theological argument they want to throw at him, he's perfectly familiar with. He doesn't have any problem. Any rabbi that wants to argue with Saul about Christianity is in a lot of trouble. He's in deep water. But more importantly than all those things, this guy is filled with the Holy Spirit of God, gifted by God to preach the gospel, anointed to that purpose. And as is the case through his ministry, the work of God is always opposed. And with Saul, that means people are plotting to take his life. In this case, the Jews of Damascus. In verse 24, their plot became known to Saul. Thank you, Lord. For whatever reason, these people are never very good at concealing their intentions. All through the New Testament, you read this, you know, and they were plotting against him to kill him. And he just happened to hear about it. Or his nephew heard about it and came and told him while he was being held in custody here. Over and over again. And, you know, I'm sure part of that is the Lord's protection for his servants. We see that pretty clearly as Saul is delivered. The text tells us that the people of the city, the, the guard, the garrison, watched the gates day and night to kill him, which in a, in a walled city is a pretty foolproof plan. But he makes reference to the whole thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 32. He says, In Damascus, the governor, under Eretus the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. So the governor is not mentioned by name. This guy, Eretus, the king, is a Nabataean holding authority over a whole huge area for the Romans from Petra all the way to, north, uh, to Damascus. And should this guy, Eretus, in the last days of his reign, he reigned until about 40 AD, this would be the first of many hasty escapes that the Apostle Paul would make through his next 25 years. As the Lord protected and sustained him through hardship and difficulty to the fulfillment of the Lord's purpose. So in verses 26 and 27, we have Saul with the Apostles. In verse 26, when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join himself to the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. And did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord. Saul had seen the Lord on the road, and that 
he, the Lord, had spoken to him. And now he preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. So Saul had come to Jerusalem. Keep in mind he's been a believer for some time now. We're thinking again about three years or so. He tries to, you know, he wants to go to where the Christians are. And the Christians didn't really hide in Jerusalem. They're in and about the temple. And so he tries to join. Imagine, imagine you're Saul, okay? And you go to the temple on a Saturday. And you see a bunch of Christians over there. And you can tell, you know, they're worshiping. And, and so you go, hey, guys. Hey. And they're like, gone in a second. You're like, what's going on? You know, what did I do? Do I have bad breath? I mean, obviously, he understood the dynamics. He knew what was going on, but it, it, he tries to join himself to, to the disciples. Notice, some of them were afraid of no. They were all afraid of him. Now, this is three years after he was sent out. Obviously, he had quite the reputation. They did not believe he was a disciple. Three years after leaving the city. And this will give you some insight again into the weight of his previous ministry as a Pharisee. Think about it. He never really persecuted the church in Damascus. That was just gossip that he was coming to do so. He didn't persecute any believers in Damascus. That never happened. All of the persecuting that he had done was in the precincts in the city of Jerusalem and in the area of Judea. That's where... So those believers who are hanging out in the temple worshiping, they had friends and family members that suffered as a result of his activity, okay? And so it's no wonder that they were so moved. So the church had not forgotten about Saul. They were all afraid of him. Verse 27, Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles. Now, how Barnabas came by the understanding that Saul was really a believer, we really don't have any kind of a clue. It doesn't tell us. It may be that Barnabas' connections in Cyprus provided some contact with Saul in Damascus. We don't know. Barnabas had connections all over. He was originally from Cyprus. However, he is true to his name, Barnabas. Bar-Nabas, Bar, son of Nabas, encouragement. That's what his name means, son of encouragement. And he brings Saul to the apostles, probably Peter and James, James the Lord's brother, like it tells us in Galatians 1, verses 18 and 19. Barnabas declares to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road, how that the Lord had spoken to him, and how he preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Both points would have helped the believers in Jerusalem to see Saul in a different light. And of course, as soon as he was like, okay, with the apostles, he's with James and Peter, you know, everybody's like, okay, all right, he's all right, good. Interesting that Saul, he's at the head of a long line of persecutors that come to faith in Jesus Christ through the history of the church, which is an amazing thing. I mean, you can read Fox's Book of Martyrs. You can read so many other books that just show so clearly people who persecute the church are often individuals that God has targeted to come to faith in Jesus. And in the process of the persecution that they offer, they are confronted with an irrefutable witness of truth that they cannot get away with. They cannot get away from. They cannot deny. Another list of impossible miracles that only God could perform. Things that you and I, we will wonder at through the ages to come. Verses 28 through 30. Saul evades capture and death, part two. In verse 28, so he was with them in Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. So Saul is with the church, with the apostles and people in Jerusalem. Something he always seemed to be looking forward to throughout his ministry. He always looked forward to getting back to Jerusalem. And I think... And again, I'm, I'm speculating a little bit, but I think because of his background, his knowledge and his pedigree, in his mind, this is the place God can really use me. I know these people. I know about these people. This is the place. I, I mean, they have no argument that I can't answer. 
All I have to do is show up here and people will, you know, just fall on their knees and come to Christ. And it never seemed to work out that way at all for some reason. And you know, isn't it the truth? All these things in your life, you think, wow, if I could just do X, Y, and Z, I'd go there and God would do this whole thing. And how come God never does anything the way you think he should do it? Have you ever wondered about that? Man, it's true. I tell you. I, and, and we do, we make, you know, a pastime of it, sitting around and thinking, okay, how's God going to do this? And we kind of theorize and come up with ideas. And God always has some interesting wrinkle, something that he does that we would never have guessed. But he does it. Thank you, Lord. He spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus against the Hellenists. Now, these Hellenists, these are Grecian converts or Jews that are born and living outside of Israel in the Roman world that are so affected by Grecian culture that they kind of relate in that way. They speak Greek. They're Greek in cultural nature. And he's preaching the gospel of Jesus to these people. Some of these people may have been the same as those who manufactured witnesses to accuse Stephen back in chapter 6 or 7. Whoever they were, it's likely that they had some history with Saul. Anyone devoted to the preservation of the status quo in Jerusalem is going to see Saul as a huge problem. He's somebody to be dealt with if you want to see things in Jerusalem stay as they are. Here in Jerusalem, these are men of action. They didn't plot to kill him. They just up and made an attempt. They didn't sit around and talk about it in the back room. They just grabbed a hold of him, and they were going to try and do it Right now, they took their shot. They attempted to kill him right there. Keep in mind, he's been in Jerusalem a little bit less probably than two weeks. He's, I mean, by the time he leaves, he's only been there 15 days. So he's only been there 10, 12 days, and they're, always, they're trying to kill him. It gives you an idea of the impact that he's had. That's pretty quick work, even for the Apostle Paul. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea, so they shipped him out to the seacoast right away and then sent him to Tarsus, which, of course, is where his, his family is from originally, uh, Saul of Tarsus. Uh, partly, I imagine, for his protection, maybe mostly. Well, yeah, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Mostly for his protection. But also, I'm thinking, to keep a peaceful situation and con continue to share the truth of Christ with the religious establishment. You know, the, uh, the church in Jerusalem was really enamored of the fact that so many people in the Jer Jerusalem establishment of Judaism was coming to faith in Jesus. Back in chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So these are priests. These are people who are going to the temple, offering incense. There are people going to the temple, uh, sacrificing animals on the brazen altar out in front, going inside, uh, partaking of the showbread. They're doing this. These people are, are old school Judaism, 110%, but yet they're obedient to the faith of Christ, which I'm sure you got to see as some kind of conflict in a real way. By the time we get to chapter 21 of Acts, Acts 20, 21, uh, Saul shows up, actually Paul at this time shows up in Jerusalem and he explains about the amazing thing God's doing in Greece and uh, in Turkey as far as people coming to faith in Christ and all the many churches there. And when the apostles heard it, the church leaders, James among others, I imagine, they glorified the Lord and they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads, thousands of the Jews who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Now that's a problem. They don't see it as a problem. They're, they're patting themselves on the back. They're saying, look at how many thousands of our Jewish brothers and sisters here in Jerusalem are trusting in Jesus, and they are all zealous for the law. Now, you and I know that God's going to take care of this very shortly. It's going to be about 30 years. And uh, you know, Vespasian's going to send Titus and the Roman army in, and it's going to be dun dun da da. That's it. No more temple for two thousand years. No worries about offering sacrifice. Gone. Okay. But for the moment, even though the leadership in Jerusalem ain't picking it up, this this is a serious issue. He says back in Acts twenty twenty one. 
they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought to not circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. Now, some of the things that they were accusing him of are partially true. In fact, honestly, if you look at the things that Paul's accused of by the Jews in the book of Acts, the things they want to kill him for after chapter 22, that they're trying to kill him. And then you go through and read his epistles. Places like 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where he calls the law the ministry of condemnation. How do you think that would have gone over in the temple? You know, you guys all practice as a law, all zealous for the ministry of condemnation. I don't think so. Just about everything that they accuse Paul of are things that you can substantiate from the book of Romans and Galatians and Corinthians, one way and another. Now, did Paul hate the law? No. He had a balanced perspective. He understood the law is a schoolmaster to bring it to Christ. The law is not passing away. Jesus fulfilled the law. And we are following Christ. We have liberty in Christ to worship. He understood those things. All those people in Jerusalem, not only did they not understand them, they weren't even going to hear it. They were not able to hear it. Why? Because they were indoctrinated instead of instructed. The majority of the gripes, pretty well founded. The leaders were kind of, they remind me of... uh, a group of people I tried to work with at Pasadena High School back when I was youth pastor. I went over there and there was a particular Christian group on campus, the only one on campus at PHS. And I went over there to meet with these guys and see what they were going to do. And their idea for doing ministry on a high school campus was they were going to do fun events for the kids all year long after school. They are going to make hot fudge Sundays for the kids. And then they were going to do like, you know... Uh, water balloon fights, and then they were going to do all kinds of other, just a whole myriad of all these interesting events, you know, one a week with all the kids, and then at the end of the school year, they're going to invite all the kids to go to a retreat. And then they're going to take them off up to the mountains to Lake Arrowhead somewhere, you know, at a retreat center, and then they're going to preach the gospel to them. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you serious? I mean, some of these kids might be dead by the end of the school year. And you walk around a high school and you look at what's going on there and you think, man, these kids are, they're flipping out. Seriously, if you ever have the opportunity to walk on a public high school campus, I encourage you to do so. It is, it is terrifying. It is terrifying. Look at the looks and the faces of these kids. They are lost. They have no clue in the world. They don't have any idea that there is anything in this world that can help them with the mess that they're in. They have no clue. They need God's help in the worst possible way. And my thought is, you know, get the heck out of the way and let the Holy Spirit do His job. Tell the truth. You know, there are a few things that bear testimony so convincingly to Saul's effectiveness in the service of the gospel as the consistency with which his life is threatened by the enemies of the gospel. I mean, if you want to look at somebody and gauge their ability to do their job, that, I mean, that puts him way high, as far as I'm concerned. The enemies of the gospel want this guy dead, and they will do anything to see it happen right now. And not counting riots or general upheaval in local towns, the expulsion from a particular community or some other drama, there are at least nine specific times between here and the end of the book of the Acts where Paul's life is pointedly threatened by those who intend to silence him. And there are just as many, of course, ways that the Lord delivers him from the hands of those who seek his life. Saul is truly devoted as a servant of the Lord. And he has been since before Damascus where he was devoted And he testifies of his relationship to God even before becoming a believer. Acts 22.3 says, I'm indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city, Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our fathers in the law. I was zealous toward God as you all are today. Acts 26.5, he says, They knew me from the first 
if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Acts 26, 9. Indeed, I thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he could have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Saul's testimony of his own conduct as a Jew. And yet, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, everything changes, doesn't it? Everything changes. One of the things that is needful in coming to faith in Christ is the understanding that you are a sinner in need of salvation. Now, I know that all of you guys understand that idea kind of vaguely. And unless you've done something pretty horrible recently, it's probably not very graphic to you in detail. If you have messed up hugely, then maybe you, you got a handle on it. You understand that you are a sinner in need of salvation. But generally speaking, if you think of yourself as a pretty good guy, then that idea is kind of foggy. It's a little nebulous to you. It's a thing that we need as believers in Christ. We need to understand that we are sinners and that we need a, we need a Savior. It's doubtful that Saul had that understanding as a Pharisee. Philippians 3.6, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless which is a pretty stark contrast. Listen to how he describes himself in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I'm number one on the list. His quote in 1 Timothy 1, this is a good many years following our narrative here in Acts 9, more than 20 years. And yet the nature of his failure as a person is no less glaring to him. Do you think anyone else saw him in that light? Maybe non-believers. Maybe a few people in Corinth who didn't like him much. Certainly his failure in persecuting the church was never a thing that he took lightly. Do you hear that? He never took his failure lightly, nor should we ever take our sin lightly. Sin is against God. If my sin was just against you, I could get away with that. You're a creep like me. I'm sure you deserve it. Maybe I don't know, but I'm, you know, I have no doubt you've dropped the ball. Sin is against God. And I'm sure he took it to be the most serious thing. 1 Corinthians 15.9 says, I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And that is an issue, folks, that he never lost sight of. But at the same time, Something happens to sin when you become a believer. You can know all about sin before knowing Christ. You can go to church. You can go to Catholic church. You can go to Christian church and hear all about sin. I did. didn't mean anything to me. But when you become a believer, sin becomes personal. If you have no connection with the person you offend, it's really of little consequence. Even if you're considerate and a person with, you know, compassionate sensibilities. It's like, you know, do what you can. Let it go. Without some real relationship to the person you've wronged, it becomes very difficult to assess the nature of your offense. Because when I offend any person, one of the things that plays into the seriousness of that failure is its impact upon the person offended. With that in mind, the closer I am to an offended person, the better I understand their injury. Unless, of course, it's my wife which even if you don't understand exactly how you've injured somebody, it's very important to be willing to consider their view and to take responsibility as they see the situation. Listen to people. Understand what their gripe is. Be willing to talk to them. Even if I don't understand, I need to be willing to consider their view. A person that does not know God, okay? And I mean really know God. I'm not talking about somebody who is to church. A person that does not know God, sin is imaginary. It is a victimless crime. 
even for religious people like Saul, sin is a technical detail justified by sacrifice and lawful intentions. But for anyone that knows the Lord, sin is a personal injury and transgression is betrayal and there is no justifying because he knows exactly what my motives are inside. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26 says, If we sin willfully after we have received knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation that will devour the adversaries. Hey, when I do something that I know the Lord doesn't want me to do, and I find myself sitting there after the fact saying, I knew I shouldn't have done that. I know that was the wrong thing for me to do. Do I think I'm going to hell? The thought has crossed my mind. But I know the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says if I confess my sins to him that he's faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9 and 10. But at the same time, my heart's beating 120 miles an hour. I have that sense of this foreboding that the author of Hebrews talks about. I, I can see that there are people who know God, and I've known them, by the way, who have turned away from the way, way of Jesus Christ and have gone their own way. And if I bump into them in the city of Pasadena somewhere, and I say, how you doing? And they're like, oh yeah, hi. Yeah, I was going over there at Calvary. They know. They know that the Bible is true. They're not kidding. They know. But they look at their life and they think there's no way that I can make it back. The enemy's lied to them. The enemy has convinced them that there's no way that they can get back to be with Christ. It's a lie from hell. And they're not willing to try. It is tragic. Saul was not a believer when he persecuted the church. What did he actually do? Acts 26.9 gives us a pretty good account. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. Many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. This at least refers to Stephen and may refer to others as well. I punished them often and in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. Think about that. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Do you think this guy ever had a day where he did not see the faces of the dear saints that he had tormented for their faith? Why do you think the book of Acts records Stephen's face as that of an angel? Acts 6.15, all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Was Luke there? No. Luke, the writer of Acts, was not there. Hmm. Who was there? That's right. Saul was standing there and looking at his face. And in his heart and his mind, it looked to him like the face of an angel. And he recorded in his mind the words that he said as he was stricken dead to ask God not to hold this sin to the account of those who were present. In Damascus, all that has changed. Saul looks back. He understands what he's done and to whom he did it. To injure innocent people is terrible. To injure the Lord is the most serious issue of the life of any person. Saul is, in chapter 9, humbled. You guys, even humiliated. He is brought very low. Everything that he has invested his life in, working as hard as he can, day by day, is gone. It's gone. And not only that, he's left with a deficit. He has offended God horrifically. He is not serving God. In fact, he was doing the opposite. What must it have been like for him to understand the truth of who he was and what he was doing? This guy was brought very low. Scripture tells us 
James 4, 6, God gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. And I wonder if this guy would even have survived except for the words the Lord gave him. Again, we read before Acts 26, 16, the Lord told him, rise, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose to make you a minister and a witness of the things which you've seen and of the things I will reveal to you. In other words, God right there on the spot as he got up off the ground, gave him a calling. I have a job for you. Get up. I've got work for you. God is so good. Even in the most desperate situation, the Lord calls us to turn. He may, he may well you know, burn the house to the ground, but he's still right there to help you up. Hosea 6.1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us, but he will heal us. He has stricken us, but he will bind us up. Saul has seen his sin up close and personal. He understood, maybe like few people ever will, he saw his emptiness, he understood his hopelessness. This guy's broken. He is utterly broken. And through the years, people have wondered, how does this work? How is it possible that this man survives such a powerful contradiction and come out the other side immediately, immediately preaching the word of God, preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. And not just going through the motions. It's like he took the three days and it all came together in his mind. I think part of the reasoning here is something Jesus said as he visited the house of another Pharisee a few years before. If you go back to Luke chapter 7, Jesus is invited to what is basically a public dinner at the house of a Pharisee, a guy named Simon. And as he takes his seat at the dinner, there's a woman present who, in Luke chapter 7, verse 38, stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet, Jesus' feet, with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. She kissed his feet and anointed them with a fragrant oil. And now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, he would know who, what manner of woman this is, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. And when he had nothing, they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him the more? Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave the more. And Jesus said to him, you have rightly judged. And then he turned to the woman. He said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. And therefore I say to you, notice he's looking at the woman, he's talking to Simon. I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. You see the problem, guys, is the way that we see our sin. It's not that we're forgiven little or much. It's that in our own minds, this Pharisee imagined that he had very few things. He's a Pharisee. Very few things in his life that he needed to be forgiven. Little did he know. For whoever is forgiven little loves little. Saul understood what he had been forgiven. For the rest of his life, he never looked at another person and thought, this guy's worse than me. This guy's not as righteous as I am. This guy's more of a sinner. Never, never, never. Was not in his nature to be able to do that. And so his service reflected that truth immediately. He was forgiven much. And there is one other thing. Whenever we come into contact with the Lord, any experience of life where we understand ourselves to be in the presence of the Lord, He reveals Himself to us and we learn about who He is and we also learn about who we are. Search the Scriptures. 
Whenever it happens that a person comes into the presence of God, they learn about who they are. It's impossible for a person to know who they are without knowing the Lord. We learn about who we really are and also about who we're not. Saul thought he was a big wheel. But the truth, he was persecuting Christ. And for the rest of his life, he would persecute, he would suffer persecution as a servant of Jesus Christ. Some people think that they're big wheels. I hope not. There are no big wheels in the church of Christ. Only servants. Only servants. 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who enabled me as he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, Paul says. In verse 31, the church is blessed and multiplied. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplied. And this is no small area. In fact, honestly, if you think about it, throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. This is basically the area of Jesus' preaching during his ministry. And a great many of the people to whom Jesus preached coming to faith, people who actually could have seen Jesus during his ministry, a lot of the seeds the Lord sowed were coming, no doubt, bearing fruit. Then the churches had peace and were edified. What can you say about peace? I look at kids, you know, I look at, We've got teenagers in here tonight. Pardon me, guys. I, I apologize. Don't mean to look down on you at all. I appreciate peace. I appreciate what, I mean, like, real peace. I appreciate what peace is. I don't think you can appreciate peace unless you've laid in bed all night long without being able to sleep. You lay in bed, you want to go to sleep, and your brain is just spinning. I mean, you know, it's a wonder if there's steam coming out of your ears. And you're just, you know, there's no peace. It's terrible. The absence of peace is torture. It is a life of pain. And folks, there are people who come to this church week in and week out and have no peace in their lives. And it's, it's horrible. Peace is the Lord's purpose. And there is, there is a lot of peace between here and the time where we're going to come into God's presence. The peace is that target. We will have peace if our lives are operating in the direction of God's Holy Spirit, even in the midst of trouble. John 14, 26, Jesus says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled Neither let it be afraid. John 16, 33. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. And that's the only place you're going to have it is in Christ. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so they had peace and they were edified. That is built up. They were developed. They were developing. And as a believer there is no static. There's no clinging to the status quo. Nobody sits still. You are either growing as a believer in Christ or you are losing ground. I'm sorry. I apologize. I'd like to tell you you just take it easy and cruise. It doesn't work. I've tried. It doesn't happen. You're either growing as a believer in Christ, you're challenging yourself to follow the Lord day by day, or you are losing ground. Plain and simple. And how is it that we're being developed? Walking in the fear of the Lord there in verse 31. Walking in the fear of the Lord. Another way of saying that would be what it says in Proverbs 3, 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Acknowledge the Lord in everything that you do. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And he's called the comforter, isn't he? The comfort of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5 says, Now hope, the hope that we have as believers, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. If we do these things, the things that we can do, we can do these things, we also will be multiplied as they were. And that's our hope. Father, we thank you, Lord, for being here with us tonight. Lord, we thank you for your spirit that works in our hearts. and Father, for conviction. 
for instruction in righteousness, Lord. Lord, the world is a mess. It is a mess. And Lord, if it were not for your hand upon our lives, it would be terrifying. We have no idea so many things, Lord, that are going haywire out there. But Lord, you are our confidence, Lord, in everything that we do. You are our hope. And Father, we pray, Lord, that we would sincerely, from the bottom of our hearts, that we would belong to you. And Lord, we pray with that in mind, Father, forgive us for all of our sins. Cleanse us from iniquity. Straighten us, Lord, Father, to go forward for the days to come. For how many, however many days we have, Lord, that we would be pleasing in your sight, that we would honor you, that we would turn not to the right hand or to the left. Fill us, Lord, each and every one of us in this room, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, reveal your grace upon us. Help us, Lord, to be accountable to you, to honor you, and Lord, to worship you with our lives from day to day. We love you. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.